Well, in the literature produced for the series, the subtitle of this evening's lecture is the question, what is wrong? There is something wrong with us as human beings. And this evening, we're asking the Bible, God's word, to tell us what it is. Now, in addressing this question, and it addresses it very directly, the Bible does two things. First of all, it confirms that there is something wrong with us. Its testimony is that we are not what we were at the beginning when we came from our Creator's hand. Something has changed. Something has gone wrong. And it has affected every part of our humanity. We are now terribly and fatally flawed. So the Bible confirms that there is something wrong with us and secondly it explains to us what it is we are sinners all that is wrong with us physically, mentally emotionally, spiritually and behaviourally is ultimately to be traced to this we are sinners but for sin in our lives we would be flawless in every respect but because sin is in our lives We are far from flawless in any respect. So our theme this evening is man as a sinner. And I do appreciate the opportunity uh, to come and speak to you on the subject this evening and appreciate your very kind welcome. Now, obviously, this is not the pleasantest of themes to take up, but there are great reasons for doing it. For one thing, it is a vital element in our doctrine of man. We simply cannot understand man fully unless we see him as a sinner. If you were to give a foreigner a map of the British Isles with Scotland or Wales missed out, you would leave him with a very imperfect idea of what the British Isles are. And so the doctrine of man with sin missed out the resultant picture is radically imperfect and incomplete. So we need to look at sin in order to get the whole picture of what man is. But more fundamentally, the fact that man is a sinner is vital to our understanding of Christianity as a whole. It's not too strong to say that it's the key to understanding what Christianity is all about. One writer has put it like this, Christianity is in its essential nature remedial. It is not a mere benefit bestowed to increase the well-being of man, it is a deliverance. And it's only by understanding what man is as a sinner that we can begin to understand what this deliverance is all about. So then we turn to our theme Man as a sinner. And in opening it up, we're going to do four things. We're going to look, first of all, at what sin is. Secondly, at how it came into the world. Thirdly, at how it afterwards spread. And lastly, at what it has actually done. So we begin then with what sin is. And this is, of course, the obvious starting point. It is sin that makes us sinners. And therefore, if we're going to understand what it means to be sinners, 
we must understand what sin is. Now, there have been lots of theories, and if you have a copy of Berkhoff's Systematic Theology, you will find a discussion of seven of them in pages 2 to 7 and following. There is, for example, the theory that sin is merely privation. And there is the theory that sin is an illusion. And there is the theory that sin is a want of God consciousness. And there is the theory that sin is a want of trust in God due to ignorance. Lots and lots of theories. Well, Berkhoff discusses each of them briefly and points out, as he does so, that as theories of what sin is, they all fail to do justice to the teaching of the Bible. So what then is the teaching of the Bible? What is the Bible's understanding of sin? Well, in order to answer that question, we must reflect for a little on the law or the will of God. Now, the law of God is a fact. The God who made us has given us instructions as to how we should live. And he has done so in two distinct ways. First of all, he has spoken to us. To our first father Adam, for example, he spoke directly, instructing him when he placed him in the Garden of Eden not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God spoke again directly at Sinai, giving to the people of Israel those ten great words, the Ten Commandments, in an audible voice. He has spoken through Old Testament prophets. He has spoken through dreams. He has spoken through his own son. He has spoken through New Testament apostles. And to us, he constantly speaks through the Bible. It is his word. And in it, he makes known to us his will. He tells us through the Bible how we are to live as his creatures and as his people. But God has not only spoken to us. In the second place, he has also implanted instruction in our hearts and consciences. Now, the Apostle Paul refers to this very explicitly in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. When Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature the things required by law, they are a law for themselves. Even although they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Here are people from whom the law of God in its verbal or written form has been withheld. And yet they are not ignorant of what their creator wants, of what his will is. And the reason is that the requirements of his law are written upon their hearts. Things that the law demands, things that the law forbids are known to them. They know that certain things are right. They know that certain things are wrong. And when they do one or other, their consciences either accuse or defend them. 
And this is not something that is confined to a certain group of people. This is absolutely universal. Every human being has an inner sense of right and wrong. And it is because the Lord, when he made us, implanted instruction in our hearts. So divine law is a fact. The God who made us has told us how to live. He has done so by speaking to us and he has done so by implanting instruction in our hearts. Now it is against that background of law that sin is to be understood. All of us, and there are no exceptions, have in thought, in word and in deed, in feeling, motive and intention, both done things that the law forbids and we have failed to do things that the law requires. And that is what sin is. It is, to quote from the Shorter Catechism, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And on that, the scriptures are very clear. It is in reference to law and our failure to fulfill its demands that sin is biblically defined. We are told, for example, in Romans 3 verse 20, that by the law is the knowledge of sin. As we come face to face with the demands of God's law, we become conscious of our failure to live up to its demands. And that is sin. Romans 4 verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. If God did not have a law, sin would not exist. Sin can only be where there is law to transgress. You have the famous definition of John in 1 John 3 verse 4. Sin is lawlessness, rebellion against law. And then James 2 verse 9. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So breaking the law and sinning are one and the same thing. So it is in reference to law that sin is to be understood. God has given us a law. He has revealed to us his will. And that will extends to every area of life. And as often as we fail in words, in thoughts, in motive, feeling, action, to live in accordance with that law, we sin. And that brings us to consider in the second place how sin came into the world. How did it all begin? Well, in Genesis 3, which was read to us earlier, we have our answer. Our first parents had received a command. They were not to eat from a certain tree which God had planted in the middle of the Garden of Eden, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they disobeyed. Under the deceiving influence of a satanic temptation, Eve took some of the fruit and ate it. And having done so, she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And that's how it all began. Our first parents, when God made them, were not sinful. 
That is, they had no inward bias toward disobedience. They were without moral flaw. And they would have remained so had they not sinned. But they chose to sin. And that is how sin came into the world. Now, it is not my intention this evening to go into the details and lessons of the narrative, instructive as that would certainly be. The one thing that I do want to underscore is its historicity. What we read in Genesis chapter 3 is the history of what actually took place. In other words, in Genesis 3, we really have the story of how sin came into the world. Now, this, as I'm sure you know, both has been and continues to be widely denied. We are told that Genesis 3 is to be regarded as a fable, or as a legend, or as a myth, or as a parable. And if you're interested in having an exact definition of what these are and how they differ from each other, you will find them in E.J. Young's very helpful little book in the beginning. Suffice it to say that they all deny that what we have in Genesis 3 is literal history. This chapter, it is said, is not giving to us an account of things as they actually happened. There's no evidence in the chapter itself, however, or in the surrounding context, that that is so. Quite the reverse, in fact. In Genesis 1, we have a chronological account of the events of the creation week, the work of each day being described in order. Then in Genesis 2, the focus is on man and on how God first of all made Adam and then afterwards made Eve and brought them together in marriage. It is an historical account and at the end of it, the man and his wife are both naked and feel no shame. It is a situation of great happiness. There is no cloud over their own relationship. There is no cloud over their relationship with God. Then in chapter 3, these two people, singularly favoured and blessed by God, are tempted and fall into sin and are expelled from the garden in which God has placed them. And then in chapter 4, the writer traces the outcome of this in the mixed fortunes of their family, showing us only too clearly that Adam and Eve's sinfulness had not been contained but had infected their posterity as well. It is what we might call a seamless narrative. It flows naturally and smoothly from one scene to another and is throughout presented to us as history. Moses is recording what actually happened. And that is confirmed for us in the New Testament. Take Adam, for example, In Romans 5, verse 12, Paul tells us that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And he goes on to say to us that this one man was Adam. It is a clear reference to this event in Genesis 3. There was a man called Adam who sinned against God and who by his sin brought ruin upon the whole human race. That's the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. 
actually happened. And there are explicit references to Eve as well. 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14. Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's the teaching of Genesis 2. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. That's the teaching of Genesis 3. The apostle treats these things as facts. And then on them he grounds his teaching on the distinctive roles of men and women within the Christian church. And then finally there is 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see how the apostle regarded it as a fact. Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. And Paul is anxious lest his dear friends in Corinth should be similarly deceived. So the witness of the Bible in is that the events of Genesis 3 actually happened. That in this solemn chapter, we have an historical account of how sin entered the world. And that brings us now to consider in the third place how sin afterwards spread. Now, that it did spread and continues to spread, is clearly taught in Holy Scripture. And I'm thinking here particularly about those texts that underscore the universality of sin. There is no human being who is not a sinner. There is no human being who is not sinful. Sin is one of the great universals. First Kings 8, verse 46 There is no one who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Psalm 130 verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Romans 3 verses 22 and 23. There is no difference. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. First John 1 verses 8 and 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. So everyone is in the same position. We have all done what Adam and Eve did. We have all sinned against God. Now that does not mean, and we shall come to this later on, that all are equally wicked. Nor does it mean that all people have a sense of sin. There are many people who deny that they are sinners. But nevertheless, it is the clear teaching of the Bible that all have sinned and do sin. And all it needs is for the Lord to open people's eyes and they will see it. So how did it come to be? How do we get from the Garden of Eden and the sin of our first parents to the entire human race being sinners? Well, in answering that question, we must look at the passage that was read earlier, 
Romans 5, verses 12 to 19. And I think you'll find it helpful to have your Bibles open at that place. Romans 5, verses 12 to 19. Now the spotlight is trained in this remarkable passage on the two most influential figures in all of human history, Adam and Christ. No other individuals have exercised a greater and more far-reaching influence over the lives and destinies of their fellow human beings than these two men, Adam and Christ. They stand apart from all others in this respect. Now in verse 19, which is a summary statement, Paul tells us how this distinction was achieved. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Their unparalleled influence over others is to be traced to two things. The disobedience of the one man and the obedience of the other. These are what have made these men by far the most influential in all of human history. Disobedience on the one hand, obedience on the other. Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Well, our principal concern this evening is with the disobedience of Adam. That disobedience, says Paul, through which the many were made sinners. Now, the first question that we have to settle is this. To what is Paul referring when he speaks about Adam's disobedience? Well, from the passage itself, we learn that it was a single act of disobedience to which he is referring not a life of disobedience or many different acts of disobedience, but one act of disobedience. And you can see that clearly from verse 18, where Paul speaks about the one trespass that resulted in condemnation for all men. He's thinking about one trespass. And from Genesis 3, we learn what that one trespass was. It was the eating of the forbidden fruit. Now Paul's teaching in this passage is that this one sin had a devastating effect upon the whole human race. Through the disobedience of the one man, the many, that is the whole of mankind descended from him, the many were made sinners. Now it's an extraordinary statement. And the apostle said, through the disobedience of the one man, he himself was made a sinner. We would have said, well, of course. If a sinless man sins against God, he becomes of necessity a sinner. There's no difficulty in understanding that. But Paul's concern is not with the effect of Adam's sin upon himself, but upon his descendants. And he says quite emphatically that through his disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
Now, we might be tempted to think that no one can be said to become a sinner until in the course of their life they actually transgress the law of God. But Paul says something very different. Paul says that all were made sinners through Adam's disobedience, through his transgression. Sinnership, first of all, became ours, not through some sin that we committed after our lives began, but through Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Which brings us, of course, to the key question, how do we explain that? How did one man's sin result in all being made sinners? Well, let's think for a little about what Adam was. What was this first man who ever lived? Well, first of all, he was an individual in his own right, distinct from every other individual. He was a man who had a personal relationship with God and whose conduct with reference to God's command would have a profound bearing upon that personal relationship. If he kept the command, he would continue to be holy and happy. If he broke it, then his relationship with God would be tragically disrupted. Secondly, he was the father of the human race. He and his wife Eve were our first parents. From them, the whole of humanity has descended. God did not begin the human race with a number of couples, but with one. And from that one couple, everyone who lives today has descended. So he was an individual in his own right. He was the father of the human race. And thirdly, on the basis of the teaching of Paul in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Adam can be described as the representative head of the human race. It's representative head. Now what is meant by that is simply this. God had so constituted things that the well-being of the entire race was bound up with Adam's conduct with respect to this command. If he sinned, and we shall see the proof of this in a moment in Romans 5, if he sinned, his sin would be reckoned by God to be the sin of all. Every one of his descendants, and that includes you and I, would be reckoned by God to have broken that command in him. The sin of the one would be regarded by God as the sin of all. And therefore sinnership would be ours from the moment that we began to be. And so too the punishment of death with which God had said he would visit this transgression. So that's how representative headship would work. Adam's sin would be the sin of all. Adam's punishment would be the punishment of all. And it is also argued that it would have worked the other way round. That Adam's obedience would have been regarded by God as the obedience of all. 
and that all of us therefore would have shared in the blessings that resulted from his obedience. Now the big question is this. Does this fit the facts? Is representative headship the teaching of Romans 5? Well, my conviction is that it is. For one thing, it resolves the enormous difficulty that verse 19 creates. The disobedience of the one man resulting in the many becoming sinners. How can that be? Well, if we were in him, and if the sin of the one was to be reckoned by God as the sin of all, then it follows as a matter of course that through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Then there is verse 12. Paul's famous unfinished (coughs) sentence. Let's read it as a statement, beginning with the word sin. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So death came to all because all sinned. And yet in verses 15 and 17, we are clearly taught that death comes to all because Adam sinned. In verse 15, we are told that the many died. By the trespass of the one man. And in verse 17 we are told that by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. So you see the problem. Here in verses 15 and 17, death comes to all because one man sinned. And yet in verse 12, death comes to all because all sinned. How is that to be resolved? By the doctrine of representative headship. The sin of the one was at one and the same time the sin of all. In some mysterious sense, when Adam sinned, all sinned in him. And the result As Paul tells us, is that death came not just to Adam, but to all mankind as well. The sin of the one, the sin of all. So as we think then about this literal man in this literal garden of Eden, we're thinking about someone who was more than just an individual in his own right. Someone who was more even than the father Of the human race. We're thinking about someone who was our representative head. By the constitution of God, we were in him. Our spiritual well being bound up with his obedience or disobedience to God's command. And that being so, then in the reckoning of God, When Adam disobeyed, when Adam sinned, all who were in him sinned at the very same time and fell with him in his fall. And the consequences 
that all of us here began life as sinners from day one. Sin was down on our account. We did not start life, brothers and sisters, with a clean record. We started it with sin already on the record. That sin that through the constitution of God we sinned in Adam, our representative head. Furthermore, that sin has brought corruption in its train. So that as well as being born sinners, we are also born sinful. That is, with an unholy bias toward all that is unholy and with an antagonism to the law of God. And that's the story and the account and the explanation for the spread of sin. It filters down from one generation to another, passed on from parent to child. Because Adam sinned, everyone is born a sinner, everyone is born sinful, and in the course of time that sinfulness comes to expression in acts, thoughts, words and deeds that are contrary to the law of God. So we have looked at what sin is. We have looked at how it entered the world. And we have looked at how it afterwards spread. And now in the fourth place we reflect on what sin has actually done. How has sin affected us? Or to change the question slightly, what has sin affected? It is there in Adam and Eve on account of their fall in the garden. It is there in our lives on account of our connection with Adam. What has it actually done? Well, there are a number of points that I want to make rapidly. First of all, it has affected our minds. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul urges believers not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. The mind requires to be renewed. And it does so because it has been affected by sin. Now the proof of that is everywhere to be seen. What people think about God and about the Bible and about its teachings and about themselves and about life and death and eternity and about the gospel of Jesus Christ is constantly out of line with what it ought to be. Their understandings are darkened. And though as believers we are being renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator, Colossians 3 verse 10, that renewal is far from being complete. Hence the apostles' exhortation, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds Our thinking, our knowledge, our opinions require to be progressively modified by the word of God and the spirit of God. Otherwise, in our conduct, we shall find ourselves following the pattern of the world rather than the will of God. So it has affected our minds. 
Secondly, it has affected our emotions. Because of sin, we feel things that we ought not to feel. And we fail to feel things that we ought to feel. Take love and hatred, for example. It was said of the Lord Jesus that he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And if we were unfallen creatures, our own feelings would be identical. But instead, they are frequently the reverse. There is an aversion to what is right, and there is an attraction to what is wrong. Now we see that most pronouncedly in those who are not Christians. But we see it in ourselves as well. Sin has affected our emotions. It has misdirected those with which we were created, the capacity to love, to enjoy, to be angry and to hate. And it has led to the emergence of emotions that weren't there at the first. Depression, anxiety, discontent, guilt. So sin has affected us at the emotional level. Thirdly, it has affected our wills. Now the most obvious proof of this, of course, is in the choices that we make. We choose to do wrong. And I want to emphasise that it is always our choice. There is no external constraint God never compels us to sin. It is what we choose. We see it in people's response to the gospel. For example, the Lord Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, Ye will not come unto me that ye might have life. They refused to come. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you were not willing. It is a painful and tragic example of sin coming to expression in a refusal to do what is right and a determination instead to do what is sinful. I was willing. You were not willing. But sin has affected our wills in another way. And that is brought out very forcibly in John chapter 6. In verse 44, for example, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Verse 65, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 65, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Well, what a humbling truth. Sin has so affected the will that unless we are enabled by God, we cannot respond to the gospel and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just that we will not come. We cannot come. Because sin has damaged us. To such an extent. Fourthly it has affected our consciences. Now if the conscience worked perfectly. It would never accuse us of doing wrong. When we had done right. And it would never justify us in an action which God had condemned. It would never be hesitant over the rightness of a course of action that we were contemplating. It would never 
misdirect us. But the conscience is not working perfectly. It too has been affected by sin and therefore it is no infallible guide. An action is not right, for example, simply because the person whose action it is can say, my conscience is clear on the matter. Maybe it is. But judged by the unvarying standard of the word of God, his action may be wrong. And sometimes it is wrong. And similarly, an action is not wrong simply because the person whose action it is feels troubled about it. People can have unnecessary scruples about all kinds of things and can feel guilty when the Lord himself has nothing of which to accuse them. So sin has affected the mind, it has affected the emotions, it has affected the will, it has affected the conscience. And, we might add, the appetites and drives as well. For food, for rest, for happiness, for sex, and so on. It has affected every part of our personality. And it is that fact that gives rise to the phrase total depravity. Now it's a phrase against which there is a great deal of groundless prejudice. It's a phrase that can be easily misunderstood. Total depravity does not mean that all human beings are equally evil in terms of their thinking, their speech and their conduct. It doesn't mean that every human being is as wicked as he can possibly be. And nor does it mean that the unregenerate are destitute of good qualities. They are not. They can be good citizens. They can be loyal and loving husbands and wives. They can be caring and selfless friends and so on. Total depravity simply means that every part of the human personality has been affected by sin. The mind, the emotions, the appetites and drives, the will, the conscience. Depravity is total in the same sense that regeneration is total. When we are born again, we are not immediately elevated to perfection. We remain sinners even though born again. But nevertheless, regeneration is total in that regeneration affects every part of the human personality. And it is in that sense that depravity is total. Every part of the personality affected by sin, all corrupted by sin, no part accepted. Sin has affected the whole of us, every part of the personality. Fifthly, it has affected our bodies. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam was solemnly warned by God that death would be the punishment if he sinned. And it was. Romans 5 verse 12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Adam became liable to physical death as a result of his fall into sin. And not only Adam, 
Romans 5, verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. We're back to representative headship. The sin of the one is the sin of all. Everyone sinned when Adam sinned, and therefore it wasn't just Adam who became liable to death. Everyone in Adam became liable to death as well. Death comes to all men because all sinned when Adam sinned. Our bodies are mortal, unavoidably subject to death because of the sin of the one man and our involvement in it. We sinned in him and fell with him and so became liable to death just as he did. So sin has affected our bodies. It has brought us all under the reign of death and has introduced that principle of corruption that leads to the various manifestations of ill health and so on. It has affected our bodies. Sixthly, it has affected our relationship with the environment. Genesis three seventeen and 18. To Adam... God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. Here, By an action of God and judgment, the fruitfulness of the ground is inhibited. It is under a curse. It is no longer going to yield its fruits as readily as it would have done. Agriculture, then, is going to be a struggle. Man is going to have to contend with things like drought and flood and infertility and plant disease and weeds as he seeks to live off the land. It is a picture, to use Paul's language in Romans chapter 8, of creation being subjected to frustration. What it would have been, how it would have produced, is never going to be experienced. Its full potential given to it in creation is going to be inhibited. It's never going to be realised. And it's all because of man's sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. And then there are the animals. We have no reason to suppose that prior to the fall, any animal was a threat to man. The fact that in Genesis 2 they came to him to be named by him would suggest that there was a harmony in their relationship with him. But after the fall, it was completely different. You can see that, for example, in Genesis 9, where God says to Noah and his sons, the fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth, presumably for man's protection. And later on, it is envisaged that an animal might well take the life of a human being. And God gives specific legislation as to what is to be done 
in that circumstance. So sin has affected our relationship with the environment. It has led to a reduction in earth's fruitfulness, making agriculture a much more difficult thing than otherwise it would have been. And it has led to a disruption in our relationship with the animals. And instead of harmony, there is now all the possibility of a threat to us. Seventhly, sin has affected our relationship with each other. Now you can see this in Genesis 3, for example. When Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, she then gave some to her husband. Now in doing that, Eve was completely subverting the end for which she was created and for which marriage was instituted. She was made from the man and brought to the man that she might be his helper. But now instead, she is his tempter, enticing him to follow her in her sin and what is more, succeeding. Sin had affected their relationship. You see it later on in the chapter. When God asked Adam, verse 11, Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? This was Adam's reply, and we know it so well. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Now that's very revealing, isn't it? We notice, for one thing, the not-too-subtle attempt to charge God with some measure of responsibility for his sin. The woman whom you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. But you also notice the tension that has come into his relationship with her. There are bad feelings not only toward God, but toward his wife as well. The fall affected the relationship between our first parents, and it has been affecting human relationships ever since. In Genesis 4, the slaying of Abel by Cain. And we see it throughout human history, in the wars, the divorces, the murders, family feuds, the church splits, that are all too common. Sin has affected our relationships with each other. Eighthly, two more. Eighthly, it has affected our relationship with God. Once again, we see this in the Garden of Eden, first of all. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from him among the trees of the garden. Now, there is something inexpressibly sad about that. Here were two people who had had the closest of relationships with God. Two people who would have run to him when they heard his voice because they were so glad that their God had come to commune with him in the garden. But now they're afraid and they hide from him. Sin has affected their relationship with God. And we know only too well that that has been perpetuated through our connection with Adam. You think of that great gospel word, for example, be reconciled to God. What does this imply? 
breakdown in relations. We have wronged him with our sins and now it is our duty to be reconciled to him. That is, to go to him and to confess our sins so that our relationship with him can be healed. We are naturally separated from God. Indeed, Paul tells us that our carnal minds are enmity against God. Things are so, so different from what they were at the first. Man was created by God to enjoy the closest of friendships with him. And for a time that closest of friendships was his. But the fall brought it to an end. And were it not for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, none of us here would know anything of it at all. We would instead know only his wrath and curse as he dealt with us in righteous judgment. And then ninthly, and lastly, it has affected our future. According to Romans 5, one of the things that flow from our involvement in Adam's sin is condemnation. Verse 18 or 16. The gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Verse 18. If anything more explicit, the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. Now the language couldn't be plainer, could it? The one sin of the one man, and here is the result, condemnation for all. Now in his commentary on this passage, Professor Murray has a very helpful definition of what condemnation is. He describes it as the judicial sentence which pronounces us to be unrighteous. The judicial sentence which pronounces us to be unrighteous. In other words, having sinned, we have been found guilty. It's the language of the courtroom. God has found us guilty. That is his solemn verdict. Guilty. People therefore begin life not only having sinned in Adam, but under condemnation as well. We've already been found guilty. We already stand condemned. And the bearing of that on our future is as dark as can possibly be imagined. For unless our guilt is taken away and we cease to be condemned, we face the pains of hell forever. And so you see then, taking all of these things together, what terrible things sin has done. How widespread and devastating its effects. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we can never take light views of sin, either in ourselves or in others. And that is why we must protest 
when light views of sin are advocated by others. Sin is a tremendous evil. It has had the most catastrophic effects. And were it not for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, there would be no end for any of us to the ruin and misery that sin has brought. But this evening, we give thanks to God that his grace in Jesus Christ is a reality and that it is a grace that has brought salvation. We go back, for instance, to Romans 5. Now we have seen much that is dark and disturbing in this chapter, the sin of the one man and our involvement in it and the death and condemnation that that sin has brought in in its train. But to focus only on these things would be to gravely distort the passage. Adam's sin, in fact, is not the primary thing that Romans 5 is all about. The primary thing that Romans 5 is all about is what Jesus has done by contrast. Adam disobeyed, with the result that the many were made sinners, but Jesus, by contrast, obeyed. He stood where Adam fell, and through his obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now we have no time this evening to go into the details. Suffice it to say that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have another representative head but of a very different kind from Adam. For those whom Adam represented, there is this tragic sequence of sin, condemnation, death. But for those whom Christ represented, there is the opposite sequence. Righteousness, justification, life. Through Jesus, there is righteousness to cover our sin. There is justification in place of condemnation. There is eternal life in spite of death. And that's the heart of the good news of the gospel, isn't it? Our connection with Adam has brought disaster. But through Christ, the effects of that involvement can be cancelled and will be cancelled for all who will put their trust in him. And it's such a perfect salvation that he bestows, isn't it? It's not a patch-up job or a salvation that deals with only some of the effects of sin. It's one that deals with them all and thoroughly. Our minds, our emotions, our wills, our consciences are already being renewed. And one day that renewal will be complete. Our bodies will be changed too. For when the Lord Jesus comes, the perishable will clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. 
As for our relationships, they will all one day be restored to perfection. There will be no disharmony of any kind, whether in our relationships with the environment and the new world, with each other, with God himself. Perfect harmony. And we shall have the brightest and best of futures. We have it indeed already. And one day, the many glorious promises that God has made concerning it will be fulfilled. And therefore, we have every reason to be thankful. Praise God. Sin, for the people of God, does not have the last word. God has the last word. And we have every incentive too to press on in our evangelism because it really is true that Jesus Christ is the answer. He can meet the whole of our need as sinners, the whole of it. And for a world of ruined sinners, that really is the best news that there has ever been. Thank you very much indeed. Can we just take a very short uh, break and uh, then there'll be some time for questions and comment if you want to exercise that opportunity. Just let's break for a few minutes. Those who, who, who want, want to use this time to ask any questions and make any comments. Uh, so please, if you want to do that, now is your opportunity. Yes, Peter. I've also had terrible trouble with one of the points that you made, and I, it's probably my, I'm sure it's my fault, I just can't get my head around it. Um, you know, I thought I was reading Burkhoff once, and I should read it again, I suppose, but I'll ask you when you understand. I just can't get my head around the business of this, the idea of federal headship and, and transmission. Really, how something that happened there, as you described it, is actually being transmitted through um, the human beings down the centuries and affects me now. How something in me now, this disintegration within my personality, that, that causes, that, that gives me the um, tendency to sin, is. Um, is somehow, I don't see the connect, I can't get my head on the connection. Maybe you've explained, I just, I'm a bit dim. But, <laughs> but I have a problem, really, understanding the connection there. Can you help me? Or should I just go and read Burke off again? <laughs> I, I'm always in trouble. I've been criticised for not repeating the questions so that the answers may be understood. I think the question is, Peter and probably others find it very difficult to get your head round and to relate yourself somehow to Adam. Is that what you're saying? I, I, you said it better. Yeah. I know, but it, roughly, is that what you're saying? It, it is, yes. And can you, can you help Peter and maybe others who are in that position? Well, I think it's fair to begin by saying that, that it's without question one of the most uh, difficult things to grapple with 
Uh, and if you can't get your head round, about, round it, then you are in very good company because I think most Christians struggle. And I do not have the answer for your question uh, other than the simple restatement of what the Bible teaches. I think one of the things I find helpful, because there's no doubt that the, that the instinctive reaction of the human heart is, well, that's unfair. How can God put sin down to my account because someone else sinned? And I think in that situation, it's always helpful to think about what Romans 5 is principally about, which is about the opposite uh, and other representation, which is Christ's. And it is just the way of salvation, isn't it? That what someone else has done for us is put down to our account. So, you know, the one thing is set off against the other. And what we have lost through our connection with Adam, we more than gain through our connection with Christ. And, and I suppose if we, if we can't work out and settle in our own mind that the rightness of that, we just have to come back to the fact that that's how God constituted things and he is the judge of all the earth who must do right. As for uh, reading something on it, uh, I think, uh, I'm not sure what Berkov says, although I'm, I'm perfectly sure that, that uh, he takes the standard reform view, but I think one of the most helpful things to read is actually uh, Professor John Murray's exposition of it in his commentary on Romans. Uh, if you look at Murray in verses 12 to 19, it is a superb exposition. Now, he has also got a, a more elaborate monograph called The Imputation of Adam's Sin, which is a bit more difficult. Uh, but if you have access to his commentary in Romans 5, then that is a superb treatment uh, and I, I reread it when I was preparing this and, and felt more convinced than ever that uh, you know, the position that, that Murray has taken. Now, I'm sure that has not answered your question because I, I can't really explain the heart of it other than in that way. So, Peter, you will not escape hard work. You better turn to that commentary. Yes, sir. Um, is the law intact today? Also, is the, the fruit on the tree, is it a literal fruit? It's two questions. <laughs> Did everyone get the two questions? Is the fruit law a literal fruit? Today. And is the law intact today? today? Two questions. Well, let's just take the second one first. The, the short answer is yes, it is a literal fruit of a literal tree in a literal garden. Uh, what kind of fruit it was, I don't know, but it was a literal fruit. Is the law intact? Can you perhaps elaborate what you mean by law? I mean, law? law and grace. I've heard a lot that we are all under grace today. Well, I want to know if the law is still intact also today. Well, my approach to the question is this. How does God want us to live we are certainly not redeemed into lawlessness so that as believers we are free to do whatever we please. I think that's something in which we all agree. There are directives as to how we should live as believers. So I think that's your, that has to be your starting point. We are under law in some sense. God is our sovereign. 
He has a will for our lives and we've got to abide by that law or we incur his displeasure. The next question is, what is this will? Now, there are some aspects of that question that could be answered very easily. The Sermon on the Mount, the directors of the Pauline epistles. There's no question about it. These are the will of God for Christian believers. And nine of the Ten Commandments, because no one, as far as I've never met anyone who who questioned that we were only allowed to have one God. Uh, Adultery, murder, these things are forbidden. So there's no question but that you can go to the Ten Commandments and extract at least nine of them and say quite clearly this is an expression of the will of God for me as a, a New Testament Christian. Now I happen to believe that the Ten Commandments are a particular edition and I really want to emphasize these words they are a particular edition of ten great principles that are binding on all men everywhere in every age. Now In Exodus 20, you have a particular edition of them. You have the Mosaic edition. And joined to that, there's that vast body of Mosaic legislation, which was the rule of life for the old covenant people of God. Now, all of that has passed away. We are not old covenant believers. We are not under old covenant law. But that does not mean that therefore the Ten Commandments are not obligatory, because they are a particular edition of ten great principles that have always been in effect. Now, we are, in New Testament times, under the New Testament edition. Now, you'll see a difference, for example, with regard to the fifth of them. Uh, Honour your father and mother. The promise is different. It's no longer you live long in the land, but you will live a long life. It's a New Testament edition. Now, my own conviction is that it's the same with the fourth commandment. In Exodus 20, you have a particular edition. But that in itself goes back to creation. The whole rationale behind God creating the world in six days is as a pattern for man as man. And that when you come into the New Testament, the New Testament edition of that is the Lord's day. So are we under the Ten Commandments? Yes and no. We're not old covenant believers. But nevertheless, they are a particular edition of ten rules, ten laws that are for us today as New Testament believers. Uh, that, that is how I would approach the question, and I, I know that it's a controversial area, particularly with regard to the fourth commandment, but, but that is, that's where I would stand in these matters. Yes, Mr. Bainbridge. Okay, can I first say how clear, and uh, very great for how clearly you've done, done this, it's been immensely helpful. But just one particular point about, about the fact that we're not just born prone to sin, but we're born in sin. Um, what is the implication of this for uh, very young children who, who die uh, before, uh, some may say, they would be able to uh, willfully sin, and also for those who die in the womb? Did you all get the question, what, what is the implication for being born in sin for those who die in the womb, and those who die at birth, and those who die very young? Well, I would start by affirming that every human being, even the youngest, is born in sin. And that's the reason they die. And I think that's what Paul is teaching when he talks in Romans 5 about death reigning over those who had not sinned as Adam had, that is by transgressing an actual commandment. They're conceived in sin and they die because they are sinners. 
And furthermore, we have to maintain that there is no automatic entrance into heaven for any child dying in infancy or in the womb because that child is sin, is a sinner. And infants can only be admitted into glory on the basis of Christ's redeeming work. In some way or other, in the womb, before they die, that work has to be sovereignly applied to them. Otherwise, they can't get in. Now, the difficult that, that I think, is, is, is something that we can easily maintain on the basis of revealed truth. Where the difficulty comes in is, is to what will actually happen or what does actually happen. Now, I think that it's fair to say that, that over the centuries, uh, reform views have shifted back and forward. I think if you go to the 19th century, for example, you will find a strong consensus amongst reformed theologians that all dying in infancy are admitted into glory. Uh, and that's not just Presbyterian. You'll find it in Spurgeon as well. That was a, a fairly universally held belief amongst reformed theologians. I know that there were those at that time and earlier and still who differ. Now, my own view in the matter would be that, uh, that those dying in infancy are welcomed into glory on the basis of Christ's work. I could not point to any scripture that clearly states that. I mean, there have been attempts, for example, uh, in Second Samuel 12, uh, the infant that dies, Bathsheba's child, uh, he will not come to me, I shall go to him. Uh, and it's often uh, argued that uh, you know, that's an indication that he of a conviction that the child was with God, David would one day go to God. Uh, Spurgeon once preached a sermon on this subject from the, the question that was put to the Shunammite woman, is your son well? Is it well with him? And her answer was, it is well with him. Uh, and Spurgeon used that as a basis for saying it is well. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, there are, there are various theological arguments that have been employed to undergird this. I'm not really sure how successful they are. It's maybe just one of those areas that have to be left to the mercy of God. Perhaps your, your strongest argument is simply that the goodness and mercy of God to people who were not capable of consciously sinning against God. But beyond that, perhaps one of the difficulties would be if something like this was to be stated, in what terms would it be stated? Then you would have to have a cut-off point and make differentiations between child and child until you have come to an age of responsibility. And that, that it's almost impossible to conceive of that being uh, done. So I think you've just got to leave it to the goodness and mercy of God. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. May I be allowed to comment on the first question? Indeed. Before I put another question. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Granted that Peter Sword is right in saying that the imputation of Adam's sin is not the easiest truth to understand. I think it's hugely important, however, that we shouldn't have a negative view of that truth, but a positive view of it, because for this reason it does explain facts of life as we know them. The premise with which our speaker began something is wrong 
And if that is not the explanation of what is wrong, well, what is the explanation? So I think we should have a positive view of the truth, though it is difficult, certainly, intellectually, to grasp. But not a negative view, but a wholly positive view of it. Because it has that great merit. It explains the situation that faces us. Thank now, you. Um, David, do you think that as a consequence of what you've been showing us, that we ought to put much more emphasis than is common on a law work preceding a gospel work <coughs> as we bring the message of Christ to sinners? Should we put more emphasis on a law work before a gospel work? My conviction would be, Peter, that, that we do because salvation does not make sense other than in a context of sin. It is salvation from sin and the consequences of sin. Now, if we were preaching to people who were all in entire agreement with us, who came to the, the ministry of the word burdened with a sense of sin and all that you needed to do was point them to Christ, well, we could perhaps dispense with this law work, this preaching of the commandments, this confronting people with what is wrong. But we know only too well that that's not the case. Even where people acknowledge that there are things wrong in their lives, uh, to connect that in with sin and to see, to, to show people its gravity, uh, well, that's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. And he works by means. And the means in question being confronting people graciously, lovingly, but faithfully, yes, for the fact that at this point, this point, this point, this point, you have failed. And because of that, God says you need to be changed by the power of God. I think that evangelism has to be done in that context. Otherwise, you know, we end up with people coming to Christ for things that really Christ is not there to supply in the first place. And there is an experience generated that is not really a saving experience. So yes, I would entirely agree, Peter. Thank you.